When we choose love and compassion, we create connection. In my Life and Laughter podcast, we find ways to choose love over fear. I'm your host, Perry Kinder. Hey, Life and Laughter listeners, welcome back to my podcast. I'm so excited to have you here this last podcast before Christmas, and I'm just excited to talk to our guest, Celeste Edmonds, today. She is a rock star on so many levels, and let me just tell you a little bit about her. She's the executive director at the Christmas Box House, and she has served there for many, many years, and she relates to what they do because she went through being a homeless child and all the horrible stuff that kids go through when they're taken into foster care and adoption processes. Her biological parents were drug addicts and her childhood was an ongoing cycle of police calls and fighting and abuse on all levels. At the age of eight, Celeste was taken from her home and placed into a child welfare system where moving every few months to a new environment became normal. By the time she was 16, she lived in more than 30 cities. Crazy. At the Christmas Box House, Celeste manages the organization's day-to-day operations, strategy, and revenue growth. She appreciates her team, respecting the diversity of opinions and ideas brought to fruition each day. If Celeste weren't working for the Christmas Box House International, she'd be a personal coach, believing talent should be nurtured to achieve contribution and innovation at the highest levels. She enjoys new cities, all things outdoors with family and friends, hiking and kayaking, and she is the author of a new book, Garbage Bag Girl. Oh my gosh, all those things. Welcome, Celeste. Thank you so much. It's so exciting to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this. And it was funny, I was going to reach out to you to be on my show in December just because of your um, your nonprofit, The Christmas Box House. And then I learned that you had launched this book. And I thought, oh, perfect. I even can, more to talk even about. Even more to talk about. Yes. So we'll talk about both. Um, but first of all, explain what The Christmas Box House is. Just a brief description of what you do. Yeah, so the I'm the executive director. There's we have a team of there's six of us, and our organization has uh, three main program components. First, of course, is our emergency shelters, which um, are called Christmas box houses, and those are temporary homes for children ages zero to eighteen who are removed and taken into state custody because of abuse, neglect, trafficking, or they're facing homelessness. And the we have three of them in Utah, one in Moab, one in Salt Lake, and one in Ogden. And, you know, there are many shelters in Utah. The significance to our Christmas box house shelters is that we take the, the whole child, again, age zero to 18, and that most shelters through licensing reasons are only able to take children through the age of 12. And it limits sibling groups to be able to stay together, which, you know, we can talk about more. Yeah. Um, is the most important thing to me because I lost my two siblings and um, when I was put into child welfare. So we keep about a thousand siblings together a year between the three locations. And, you know, after you've already lost literally everything else in your life, your belongings, your extended family, relatives, any friends, because you're completely relocated sometimes um, more than once, um, you just lose everything. And so to be able to have your siblings is really that last connection of, of hope and a family unit that you have. So I'm, I'm definitely the most proud of that. We have, as an organization, been around for um, 27 years this year, and we have served more than 145,000 children, wow. which is a lot to get your head around. Yeah. Um, 
So we tell people that's enough to fill Madison Square Garden six and a half times. Oh, my gosh. Um, just to kind of get some scope around that. So that's our main program, our, our um, second program, because not all children need to go immediately into shelter care. Many of them can return home quickly under a safety plan with the state. Others go into a foster care home that has been identified as a, as a great option for them. Some can stay with family members. It's becoming, you know, more common for children to live with grandparents even. Right. Um, but all kids still do need the essential items that they are losing. So whether it's toys, books, hygiene items, clothes, I always tell people if your children need it, so do ours. Um, all that still needs to to be provided and that's provided through caseworkers. Um, so we have 22 Christmas box resource rooms located throughout 14 of the 29 state or counties uh, in Utah. And that allows, um, those are in human services offices. So it allows caseworkers access to get the items for the same children that, you know, would stay at a Christmas box house shelter if they needed to. And then our third largest program is this time of year, we hold um, a Project ELF campaign, and that is our annual holiday campaign where we provide uh, over 2,600 children with Christmas. Wow. And so this is, of course, that busy time of year where we collect those items and also most items, honestly, that we're going to need for the remainder of the year, at least through summer until we're, you know, collecting things like summer clothes and bathing suits and things like that, that we obviously are not going to get today. Um so it really sustains us through a good chunk of the year. And we process about $800,000 a year in in-kind contributions. And that's a lot. And we take in a lot because everything that a child needs when they come in, they get. Everything that they need when they go to a placement, they get. So in the shelters, the resource rooms, um, Project ELF, and then, you know, we have this other cool, um, actually, fourth program that we offer, which is called our partner share program. And that is not all nonprofits, you know, are fortunate to receive everything they need. And sometimes we get way more that we have. We need of one thing. Like I made the joke last Christmas to my programs manager that if we got 700 Barbies, we'd find a home for 700 Barbies. And we literally got over 600 Barbies. So <laughs> she didn't really think the joke was too funny. I thought it was absolutely hilarious, but um, so we get these Barbies and then, you know, we don't get something like a size 13 boys gene. You know what oh, I mean? We'll right. get like, we just don't know what we're going to get. And so what are we going to do with all those? We're not going to store them, you know, our rules for more than eight months to see if we're going to need all that in our shelters or in our resource rooms. So we open up our donation center twice a year in the spring and the fall. And we have 84 community partnerships that come and basically shop for items that we got, you know, more than enough that we need and they didn't get, you know, usually anything. And it allows us to partner share out to other nonprofits because I feel like it gets fairly competitive and outside of us all having uniquely, you know, different missions, we do all tap in and serve very similarly the same demographics. Sure. And it just doesn't make sense to me that we would, hoard or hold on, you know, long-term to items that could go into the hands of children and families. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's, <laughs> that's a lot. That, those are our four programs. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And even though you named the Christmas box house, I mean, you can, you, we work all year long and you accept donations all year long. So how can people donate to your program just on the website? Yeah, the christmasbox.org. Um, 
provides information from um, how to donate monetarily to what's on our wish list. And that's updated every quarter. Um, if somebody wants a volunteer opportunity or sometimes, you know, I say, gosh, if you only have time to share it out, that's even awesome as well. So um, the website, again, the Christmasbox.org, it does have all that information year round. And like you said, we we're open 365 days a year, regardless of the economy, regardless of the pandemic, regardless of what's going on any, you know, in the world, we always have children and they do stay with us an average of two weeks to a month. And um, I think our name sometimes can be misleading because it makes people think we're a holiday campaign. Right. And we're not, we're, we're literally, you know, we have children in our shelters all year. So please let us know how you want to be involved and we, we would love it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this organization fits so much with you with what you, with your story and talking about your book, Garbage Bag Girl, which congratulations, I mean, what an accomplishment. And it had to be so hard to write. Um, It was very hard to write. It's actually, I can't even imagine. Harder to write than it was to even live in it. And I think it's because I've realized that when you're in something and you're surviving it, regardless of your age or regardless of whatever that trauma is, you're, you're moving through it the best you can and you're just getting through it. Like I always tell my kids, the only way out is through, you know, (laughs) you just have to keep pushing on. And um, the book really is driven by my need as my viewing myself as a mother at a young age, being the oldest and my need to protect my younger sister from harm. And so it was me putting myself in, in harm's way. um, Often repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In order to do that, because I felt like that was my role as her mom and nobody was going to do that. And I obviously, as a young child, didn't understand how to do that the right way or what that would look like. But really, the book has. um, So so as I wrote it, it was it was like I was living it. But this time I got to feel it uh, good or bad. I, I was, you know, I was angry at times and I was sad and humiliated at other times. And I had an opportunity to forgive. As I was reading this, I thought, I hope as she's writing this book that she had a therapist holding her hand and giving her cups of tea and wrapping a blanket around her. Cause it's so, it's so raw and it's so, I mean, you were seven. This is my grandkids who were seven. Yeah. Yeah. And that age, I mean, they're so innocent and they're so and the things you had to do, you became a mother to your little sister who was five and your baby brother when you were seven, um, yes. taking care of all of their needs. Um, I, it was so poignant when you said that you would sing Silent Night to your sister every night. I think, yeah. did, did that ruin that Christmas song for you or is that, is that a good memory? It, it, it has a strong emotional pull if oh, I hear it. Sure. sure. You hear yeah, it all the time this time of year. Yeah, she, she was so young. She has very small memories, which is interesting. Um, and for me, they're, they're so significant because, you know, the younger children are like, my brother was two when he was adopted and he, he just doesn't have any memories of our biological parents. So obviously the older you get, the more significant that is in any situation. So, but yeah, it was also very healing. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I have birthed three children, (laughs) um, but it was also remarkably healing in that I, I learned more about myself than in anything I've ever done before. And I felt braver and stronger and more courageous and just that I was more capable than I am more capable than I thought I was. And 
And it also has um, really given people insight into what the children at the shelters go through, or children in state custody go through, because they're, they are confidential in state custody. So our donors um, and community don't get to meet those children they're giving to, and those kiddos don't get to meet the community that gives to them. And so there's kind of a an opportunity for people to understand this is who this is that child I'm giving to this seven-year-old girl is that child. That mm. is who I need that donation to. That's who I bring that book to, or that stuffed animal to. And I'm, you know, I hope that it offers, offers a little bit more of a personal approach to that because it, it is something that we just can't feel as an organization. You don't get to walk in the shelter and hand a kiddo an item and say, we wish you luck and we care about you. You know what I mean? There's right. a gap for yeah. us in that way. So hopefully the book um, offers that opportunity as well. Yeah. And so just a little bit of, of a history here. So you were, came from a family with addiction, um, always fighting, just a very unstable mother and father. Your father ended up being arrested. And when you were seven, you just went through so many awful things. <laughs> you talk about your your first rape and it just, I couldn't. I couldn't read it for a minute. It was just so, yeah. like I said, I've got a seven-year-old granddaughter. I think, what what would what I do? Yeah, yeah, to be yeah. in that position at such a young age and thinking and thinking you're helping, you know, thinking this is what I need to do to help my family. Yeah. I, I don't know. what. How do you get past that? Um, and not just, I mean, multiple times sexually, sexually abused, raped at a very, very young age. And, you know, it's such a time that your identity identity is being formed. How how do you create an identity when you start out life like that, in that kind of situation? Well, you know, the, the book title, Garbage Bag Girl, is really about what you're talking about. It's not just moving with my items in a garbage sack every six months. It's about that view that you take of yourself, that you become very disposable and you become very unloved. And your role is to take care of other people. It's not to take care of yourself. It's not to allow others to take care of you because there's a trust issue there, obviously. Um, it's about what just what your role is. And you really do become mentally trapped in this place of how you value yourself. And the book stops, you know, at a very significant time of in, in my life of being eventually re-adopted. But there's there's a 25 year gap that uh, comes after that of bad relationship choices and 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 my inability to um, attach to certain things. And it's interesting because no nobody that meets me would would guess that. It's it's very surprising when they hear certain things. They're like, we just never knew. Yeah. When I read your book, I thought I had no idea. I've met you several yeah. times. Like I had no, yeah. no clue. And part of that is, and like you mentioned, I, I, I do have a great uh, trauma therapist. She does help me very much work through the triggers that I have. And I think that's that's really the most important piece is that I recognize them fast because um, it's not like you you just stop living in those places and you know you for you forget necessarily and if you did it certainly comes back up like for me it was my mid thirties before I even had many memories of these experiences I wrote about mm -hmm. and I wasn't even sure at first if it was my brain 
making up something or if it happened. And so I, I, I definitely went into therapy for a couple of years just to figure that out. And that was well into, I was well into my thirties then. And then not until Richard Evans, the co-author and our founder of the Christmas box, um, international said, you know, that he, he thought it would be a good idea if I wrote the story. And I was like, Hmm, I don't know. I think I need to spend some time thinking about it. And so I, I thought about it for about a year and then he re he brought it up again because he had written a story about me in a fiction or in a, yeah, in a fictional version called finding Noel hmm. um, years ago. And, and so he, and I've worked with him for 30 years since right. he wrote the book, the first book. So he knew enough, but he was like, there really is some, some good we can do with it. And I think it'll be healing for you, him just knowing me. And so he said, I think after a year of me, you know, really thinking it through, he's like, I think I'm just going to give you a deadline. You do a lot better on that. And so he, he did. He gave me a deadline and I spent um, eight months writing it. And it was very, very difficult. I'd have to take time off. And again, it was just because I was going through it in a different way and really processing how I felt about decisions I made and decisions other people made for me. And it was, and I interviewed biological family members. And so it just took a lot. And um, then when I came out on the other side and I handed it to him, I really did feel a sense of, okay, Hmm. I did that. And I have to recognize that that made me who I am to be able to do what I do today. And I honestly wouldn't go back and change any of it if I was given the option, because it could greatly affect what I get to do today. And I, I just would not want to do that because there's just sure. so much need now, you know, wow. and so how, how does it feel knowing that this story that's so raw and vulnerable and open is out in the world? Is that a hard thing for you to, to wrap your yeah, mind around? Honestly, that was the next phase, right? <laughs> so we, we write it, we edit it. And then there was, there was more hard. I was like, Oh, I really thought I was through that. And I wasn't. <laughs> And then there was, okay, we're going to go record the audible. And that was a whole other experience. Like now I'm hearing my own voice. say it, (laughs) Telling your story. Yeah. I'm thinking I'm going to knock this out so quick. And it actually took a couple of days. And then it was time. Yeah. Like you said, to, to push send, if you will, it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, now there's a launch and it's really being printed Celeste and there's a book cover and we're seeing all these phases. And I had an initial like, wow, did I do the right thing? Like my children are going to, they knew, they've always known a lot about my life because of what I do. But I wrote about things in the book that you've already mentioned that I've never, I've never told anybody. Mm. They're brand new revealing moments about Celeste. And I was like, man, my children are going to read it. And my (laughs) friends and family, it wasn't really strangers that worried me. It was people that know me. And I thought, are they going to treat me differently. And oh my gosh, is someone going to just feel bad for me? And and I was just fearful of that type of thing. Like the and pity, um, like a whole pity reaction. Yeah. yeah. I was like, gosh, you know what? And now it's fun. It's interesting because after now having launched it for three weeks and meeting hundreds of people and people telling their stories, um, now I really, when somebody says, oh, I read your book and they have a look on their face. Now I just ask, do you need a hug? Like, <laughs> I feel like I'm way more... You know what I mean? I'm much more okay than you are. You just right. Read it you just read it and you're just still traumatized. Like, I do need a hug. So that's kind of how that's going that's now. Funny. Very interesting. So um, in the book, you talk about how you moved so many, you, you know, your husband, your father was arrested, your family, your kids, your siblings went into the foster care system. 
um, and then just a series of homes after that, one after another. And as your as the main caretaker of your siblings, how how did that affect you when you couldn't, when you weren't together, when you did eventually get separated? They were eventually adopted into a different family. As their mother, in your mind, as their mother, how does that affect you when you can't be there for them? I think that was the first time that I experienced um, heartache and grief and all the emotions that, again, because I just had a role to play before and now I had no role. Now I had I, I, I had no purpose. Mm. Um, and there was still a little glimpse of one day I would get reunified with them. I was too young to understand what that timeline looked like. So there was still a hope of that. And then, you know, as you read in the book, I had um, people lie and, you know, tell me I wasn't, uh, my mom didn't, my biological mom didn't really want to see me anyway. And I, 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 I had a, a church component that really, cause the last thing, you know, just from a spiritual standpoint is I thought, well, I always, I always have this. I always have whatever that higher power for someone looks like in their life. Like maybe I just have that. And then there's a time in my life when even that was taken from me. And I, I was told that, you know, I'd have to be with this horrible family even after I died like that. That's terrible. It was like worse. Yeah. Eternal like, oh punishment. Yeah. Like really that's who, that's who that, that God or your person is like you, you get punished on earth and then you go to the, this next place if that's a thing for you. And, and then I still have to be with them. I mean, it was just, it got worse and worse to finally, I just felt like I, I, there's no, there's just no more purpose. It was a lack of purpose, a lack of why am I here? There's hmm. Why do we exist as humans? I mean, you know, and that's why I'm Those are teenager. big questions for a little kid. Yeah. So by the time yeah. you're a teenager, you're just like, mm, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll drink or, you know, whatever decisions you make. And I really did go down a very difficult path and I dropped out of high school and I, I, I was very confused and I, I just couldn't get grounded. And that's when I met, um, you know, who I call mom today mm-hmm. and I was 16. And so the joke, coming to that family was that I came for Thanksgiving dinner, never left um, <laughs> because it was just two weeks before Thanksgiving. And about two months into that staying at that home is when my, my mom, Carly says home is where they have to keep you. And that's the mm, first time I I've that. heard an expression of home. And I was like, mm, but do they, and I'm still, you know, really hesitant. Yeah, what the, that even yeah, the jury's out on that one still. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, I have to pause on that thought. And then she, you know, made the, comment that, but you have to get your butt back into school. She's a little more colorful than that, but (laughs) that's the requirement. And I remember thinking, well, I guess if there's like a requirement to live here, like that's no big deal. (laughs) Yeah. School's not too bad. (laughs) I mean, okay, I guess I'll go back to school. And so I went through that whole process of, you know, like my kids high graduating high school was almost silly at the end because it was such a formality of Oh, do I get a cap and gown? They were so ahead of the game. Right. For me, it was like, oh, I'm gonna take sophomore history and I can't be late or miss one day. Like it just senior year for me looked a lot different, but I did it and it was much more than just, you know, graduating. It was no one in my family had done that and my siblings hadn't, and it was a it was a big deal for our family. There was a lot of people in that stadium for me that day. <laughs> That's um, great. And then of course the um on our nine year Thanksgiving anniversary, I toasted the family and said, you know, this is the longest I've ever been in one family. And I just want to thank you Mm. for letting me be here. And, you know, my mom jumps out of her chair and 
shares us the story of that not even her biological children knew about the loss of a child she had. And she always felt she had a baby girl somewhere. And so spoiler alert, the book ends well because she adopts me as an adult. And <laughs> which um, I love so much. Right. And I always tell people when they, when they buy it and I'm like, okay, don't start it where you're like, oh, I'm just going to read a little and put it down. You're kind of going to want to get to, <laughs> you want to get to the end. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of want to get to that happily ever after kind of part for you mainly because you need to know that something good comes out of this, right? Like, yeah. You know, it's interesting. My, my podcast theme is moving through fear toward love. And that's like the yeah. example of your life is moving through fear to get to love. And I just think that's just the ultimate description of that theme. That's beautiful. You know, you talk a lot about how you were in the system with your sister, how you do things that you thought would protect her and some just awful things. And I know there was one time you beat a girl with some Barbie dolls. Um, yes. And then later in the book, you confess that you realize that you'd become a bully and a liar. And that confession shattered me because you had been in warrior mode all of your entire life, you'd been fighting for yourself and your siblings. You were doing everything you could to survive. And that meant, you know, being a bully, being a liar sometimes and, and labeling yourself as that without the backstory made me so sad to hear that you had that, that idea in your mind. That's who you were. You were in yeah, defense mode. I was. And, you know, a lot of people would read it and think it's so justifiable, but I think for me, um, and that was, the second hard, the first hardest chapter, because I wrote it first, was was the saying goodbye to my dad. The, mm -hmm. But then I wrote this chapter and decided to add it when it when I realized how significant it was in my life. That became the bullying chapter for me became the the most difficult and is still the most difficult thing for me to talk about. And you have to realize, I think, at some point that. It's all, it could all be easily justifiable. And I think when, when, especially now, when we look at the way people bully and we have shootings and all these big things, and I think it's, it's okay to have insight into the person and the why that they bully. I, I, I think there's a line of overemphasizing them over certainly a victim, but I think there's still this reality of there's something going on in that person's life. And there, I think there's a, a level of understanding that that should happen way earlier on before they reach that place. Right. But I think also you as somebody that might become that, because we all have this yin and yang side, right. We have right. this really great side about us. And then we have this side we don't love and maybe, you know, we don't become a bully, but there's still things about us that we, we work on. And I, for me, I just, if I was going to be transparent and authentic and show the world that there was this, victim side of me. And I felt like the, I, I also had a responsibility to say, I also did some things that I'm really unproud of. I, I definitely regret. And gosh, if I could ever see that Jen, cause you know, there's many Jens in my book, right. if I could see that Jen in particular, what I would say to her and, and ask for her forgiveness and the way I would hold her because she was such a, a great human. And hopefully I just, I have this visual of, in my brain that she's living this beautiful, wonderful life full of everything good, but I still would love an opportunity to, to, to say, I'm sorry and, and ask for her forgiveness because she was so kind to me. She was so good to me. So was my adopted father whom, you know, I also never got to make amends after our time together. Right. Um, 
and people will have to read the book to kind of understand some of that. But it's really for me about um, owning my part in, in what I did and and owning it allowed me to to recognize who who I am in that way and and move past it mm. and certainly have empathy for other people that are that are in a situation where they're making a decision that I'm like, hmm, that's really it really feels like an unhealthy decision, but there's got to be a why. Right. Like I just feel like people are born a certain way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there's always, there's always an origin story. Yeah. yeah, there is a backstory to everybody's life, and it isn't about justifying their decisions. But I think it is okay to understand the why. And so for me, it was just about owning that. And you know, again, if I'm going to share with the world all the other stuff about me, I feel like that's a very revealing part of who I who I was, um, who who I guess I am because it's me. Um, and the person, it's a reminder of the person I don't ever want to be for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just someone that a person that you were, that got you where you needed yeah. to be. Yeah. You know, you talk about being adopted. You were actually adopted twice. Yeah. So, and your first adoption, it, you couldn't, you can't make that up. It was yeah, such, a, what, up. such a wackadoo. Your first adopted yeah. mother was bananas, just bananas. You were given to your, your adopted sister as a, like a present, yeah, a Christmas, <laughs> a present. Christmas yeah. present. And just the whole premise of that whole adoption. How, how long did you live with them? How, how long? Was so that? nine years. Nine years. Oh, jeez. Um, I was nine when I was officially adopted legally, and then I ran away when I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was a nine-year period of living with them. And yeah, the, I I was informed later by her mother, my my grandmother, lovely woman, um, that they felt she was. Uh, for a long time bipolar, but then they really worried she she had psychotic episodes and kind of even understanding her why, you know, part of writing the book is understanding her why and my biological parents why and trying to get into, I don't write much about Kathy is her name um, and her backstory, but she has a why too. And sure. it, it, again, it's not justifiable. It's not, it's not okay that there was mostly a very psychological turmoil in my life um that was a constant reminder of why I was a garbage bag girl and I wasn't valued and I wasn't loved and for her it was just psychological mind games of weird like you said she was bananas she just no one can really even understand and most people tell me that angers them more than anything in the book is you think you could get a stable family you're going to be adopted and loved and yeah yeah, you, you go from fire pan frying pan to fire to frying pan to fire through your first 16 years of life. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping back yeah. and forth. Yeah. yeah. And she, she, um, she had her, her own demon. She passed about six years ago and um, I had to convince my, my own children not, not to have a celebration for that reason <laughs> um, because it, everything they heard That's about very her. very big of you to not celebrate for that. Right? And I'm like, you guys, let's have, a reality check. We don't, we don't celebrate the death of someone in that way. Right. Um, I'm sure there was someone out there that cared about her. So I wasn't, I wasn't relieved. Um, other than from a, from a celebratory standpoint, when she passed, I was, um, definitely relieved though, that she no longer could hurt anyone because I had learned after I ran away that she had turned abusive on my brother, Scott, he ended up leaving the home and she became abusive on my sister, Dana, Mm. um, who ended up having a brain injury. And she very, very much um, hurt her physically and mentally. 
And so she continued, it wasn't just me. And, and so her passing just kind of gave me a sense of, gosh, maybe she'll find peace now wherever she's at. And, and people here on earth can just be left alone. Like I just had a genuine sense of, wow, thank goodness that chapter's over. And um, so your, your mom, Carly, you've dedicated this book to her. Mm-hmm. What can you even explain what she's done for your life? Oh my gosh. When I gave her the book, so she didn't know. And I, had, I it was a Richard Evans was so new that Thanksgiving obviously is our anniversary every year. And he worked just so hard. He pressed so hard our printing team to, to get one copy printed for me to give her for mm. Thanksgiving. Oh, um, well before it was going to be, it wasn't released, you know, for a couple more weeks. Right. And um, I have a, a video of me giving it to her and she didn't know it was dedicated to her. And at first she was like, oh, like, honey, you finished the book. And then she opens it and I sign it and he signs it. And she's like, oh, and it's signed. And I'm like, mom, there's more. He <laughs> <laughs> gets to the page. And so you see this build up, and then she reads the dedication and you, you, there's just a moment of the two of us like realizing what it all meant for us. And I, I said, I just, I can't, there's nothing I could ever give you to express how much, you know, you've given me and, a book is the best I got. It's the best I can do is dedicate a book. And my sister's in the background. Well, I, I made a cheese tray. <laughs> so same, it's like, same. Yeah. She's like, I made it. Or she says, I made a charcuterie board. You're welcome. So it was awesome. And it was, um, you know, it's been having her at my events and, and being able to celebrate her. It's been overwhelming for her for sure, because obviously that's not why she did any of it, but I like to remind her very often as much as I can that nothing, nowhere where I am today, nothing successful that I've done, I really feel would have, would have happened without her. Um, and, and Jen, the, the Jen that took me and carried me down the block, um, from, from Kathy's house, um, you know, without those two, I don't know where I would have landed. I don't know if I would have, because I was plotting how to kill Kathy, my first adopted mom. I mean, I thought she's going to kill me or I'm going to kill her. And really she, she hurts people. So I feel like she should go. And I was really heading down a very awful place mentally. So I feel like I would have ended up incarcerated or dead. Like, I just don't feel like my path was really heading towards a a very successful outcome. And, you know, those two people, gave me life. And so I've, I view Carly as, you know, my biological mom, I will always think for birthing me, but Carly, I will always think for giving me life. Yeah. I love that. That's just beautiful. And circling back to the Christmas box house, you, you call the book garbage bag girl um, because that's what you carried your belongings in and going from place to place. And how does the Christmas box house address that for kids that come into your system, into your facility? Well, um, I love that question because it's it's a critical part of our belief um, and our values. You know, we believe that our motto is every child deserves a childhood, but it really does extend into the fact that no child ever deserves to feel like garbage ever. And that is um, represented in 27 years. No child has ever left the Christmas box house with their items in a garbage sack. We're very proud of that. They choose 
a duffel bag or backpack or, you know, whatever bag works for them, but they choose that. And then children also never leave with um, used items. We, um, they get only new items. And that is really about a mindset that we want to teach them that they deserve that. Like anybody else, they deserve to know what it feels like to have a new pair of jeans or a new pair of um, sneakers, um, their own hygiene items without asking to borrow them, their own stuffed animal, bear, whatever they choose, their own whoopee soft blanket to drag down the hall. They deserve to have all those things be new, not because we all have a personal issue against hand-me-down jeans. My kids certainly grew up with those from relatives, which <laughs> sure. are awesome right. and appreciated. <laughs> but when you only get used items, when you only use borrowed things, you you never understand. And again, you're just carrying that concept around that you're disposable and you're used and you get used things. And that's just the life you get. And now that we're 27 years strong, we have um, Christmas box alumni, um, kiddos that are adults now that we're in our program that come back because they ask how they can give back and every single one of them shares some similar experience about an item that they still have today that they got then that was new. Wow. Um, and it's like, you know, my kids make jokes like, mom, I can't believe you hang on to these baby items we came home from in the hospital. And I'm like, but they still find it cute, right? They still find it somewhat endearing, even <laughs> right. if they're not admitting it. And these adult Christmas box alumni have that same feeling of, oh, I got everything taken from me and I lost a lot, but I got this. And then when I circle back and say, did you know that those items were all given to you by people in this community that you've never even met? Like all that time you thought you were valued as nothing. There were people, strangers that looked out for you, that loved you, that have cared about you all this time. And it's a full circle. It's a 160 moment for them where they get to realize that um, it's good. You know, it's okay. Things are, things are better now. Things are hopeful. And they more importantly get to make, you know, all the decisions for their life moving forward. But it stems from them having some of those items. Like a, one kid said, I still have Ricky the raccoon. <laughs> that he got when he was four oh, wow. and he's Ricky the Rock. Like those are, those are symbols for right. them. Um, like my treasures were in my book that I lost, you know, they were symbolic of a time when things were good. Wow. And so it, it's meaningful. And that's how we carry that message of childhood is no garbage bag and nothing used. <laughs> I, love, I love that. It's so powerful. You know, the, we have, we have two things in common. I've learned about you. Um, you love to meditate I do. And your favorite book is The Universe Has Your Back by Gabby Bernstein. I love that you said that. I love that book so much. And I love her super attractor book. How how did that book affect you and how did that change your trajectory? Oh my gosh, that book, I read it uh, this year. Um, and this year was a was was very significant for me in terms of changing my mindset. Um, I in April left an extremely toxic um, 15 year relationship. Oh, wow. Um, and I wouldn't have done it, by the way, without writing my book. I, I really had to learn a, a lot of things about myself and where I was at um, still. And the first book I read uh, during, so I got my trauma therapist last January, and then I started reading a book um, by Dr. Perry and Oprah Winfrey actually called. Oh, um, yeah. 
I can see the t- picture in my head. Something about I just forgot. What, what happened, happened to you? What happened to you? Yeah, yeah. And it it and and it's a trauma based therapy program that we actually are training in Christmas box houses, and it's become very world renowned. And it's about changing the narrative of how we ask people instead of what's wrong with you, we ask them what has happened to you and. When you do that with yourself and you gain an understanding of, oh, all these things happen to me, they're not who I am and there's nothing wrong with me, but as I better understand them, I begin to make better choices. So I'm reading that book. I'm writing my book. I have my amazing therapist, Sandra. She's wonderful. She's even on speed dial. (laughs) I'm sure she is. um, I, somebody, or I'm walking through one of my favorite bookstores downtown and I find this book, The Universe Has Your Back. And it just, you know, I had one of those moments. It was just like, pick me up. You're supposed to pick me up. Okay, I'll pick you up. (laughs) And I thumbed through it and I was like, okay. And I had signed up for a retreat that I was going to in St. George. um, That was just one of my yoga slash healing retreats. And I was finishing my book and I listened to it on Audible on the way there. And, um, I have this overwhelming feeling of you, you were wronged about your spirituality. You do have some strong belief systems about, you know, there's, there's things in force that are bigger than you. You know, that's fundamentally important to you, Celeste. You need to honor that and figure out what that looks like because it was people and institutions that robbed that from you. It's mm-hmm. not real who you believe in your core. And the book gave me this new perspective that if, what happens if I just surrender? What happens if I just say, okay, universe, I'm, I'm going to trust that you're there for me. There's great things there for me. And I'm going to surrender. Not I'm going to try to surrender. Not I'm working, right. on, I'm working surrender. on surrendering. I'm, I'm all in. And I became kind of like that show, like the yes show where you just answer yes to everything. Yep. And it really started shifting my narrative that, um, you know, I have very strong beliefs now that if I'm going to make a decision and it doesn't make me healthier, um, it doesn't bring me closer to my higher power and it honestly, instinctually just doesn't feel right. If I have to convince, do a lot of convincing otherwise, it's, it's no longer optional. It's now, I just know that my path forward is always my path forward. And I have a lot of faith in that. I have, I have a lot of strength in that. And when I look behind me, if there's something there that doesn't serve me and fit me well, I just don't do it. It's a deal breaker. There's no questions. I'm not going to, I'm not going to convince myself to do anything that doesn't feel good yeah. because it maybe benefits somebody else. Yeah. And the book just changed that perspective for me. And a uh, man, if I could meet, when people ask if you could meet one person, if it was her, <laughs> I, it, and part of it is because I just want to give her gratitude. I just want to say in person, thank you so very much. Like people are telling me about my book, like the power of a story, as you know, you've been, you've been working and writing for your whole career the power of stories, there's just nothing like it to connect people, you know? Um, and I, I, that book just did that for me. It just completely changed. And I also own that I'm the garbage bag girl. Like I don't, I don't feel bad about it anymore. I'm right. like, I, I was her and, and to a certain degree I am her. And now I get to be proud of her and not feel bad that she missed out on so many things. And 
So yeah, it's all good. And it all just happened this year. It's a big year. (laughs) It's been been a rough year for you. It's been a really (laughs) But a very enlightening. Yeah, it's been enlightening and growth. I mean, holy cow. All so at once. Good. Thank you, universe, for the, the right? very in-depth lesson. <laughs> well, thank you. So, and where can people find your book? Um, it's on Amazon and uh, Audible's on there, Kindle's on there. All the things have, have now become available. Great. And that's Garbage Bag Girl. So yeah, get a copy, read it. It's it's fascinating and you will cry. I was worried I wasn't going to make it through this interview without crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always tell people, if you read it and you need to reach out, feel free. I'm available for a hug. <laughs> it's all good I love that we'll get through it together yes well thank you so much for your time Celeste I know you're super busy this time of year and have a beautiful holiday and um, keep up the good work you're doing such great things you too you too and thank Thank you for listening people love you all so much out there listening you make me happy every single day have a wonderful holiday and we'll be back in 2024 crazy To continue your journey toward love and connection, follow me at Life and Laughter Coaching on Instagram and Facebook.